Welcome to the Platform to Perform podcast, the podcast for athletes, coaches, and anyone looking to perform at their highest level. If performance is your goal, we aim to provide you with a platform to perform. I'm your host as always, Todd Davidson, and on episode 34 of the Platform to Perform podcast, I'm thrilled to introduce Lee Taft. How are you doing today, Lee? I'm awesome, Todd. How are you? Thank you. First of all, thank you for inviting me to be on your show. I'm, I'm really honored and looking forward to it. My absolute pleasure. As I said off air, I've been uh, following your work since what groundbreaking one and two and uh, the days back then and got a ton of notes and excited to get into it. So yeah, I'm very well. Thank you. Great. Awesome. Uh, the first question I ask all guests inspired by uh, Simon Sinek's book, Start With Why, is uh, why do you do what you do, Lee? Great question. Great question. And uh, thank you for asking that because it gives me a chance to share um, what I think a lot of people miss is um, you know, I, I have always understood we, we as adults have to make a living. We got to provide for our family. So we do things that can obviously um, afford us to make an income so that we can provide for, for our family. But I think one thing that I was taught a long time ago by my, my, my parents, my dad in particular, who was in education for 44 years, and my brothers and my sisters were teachers as well, is you have to be able to give back. And that always mattered to me. And the things that I do now after being in this profession for over three decades still stems from giving back. And that's important to me. And I think anytime I've started a new program or a new idea or a new project and I couldn't connect how I was giving back to the greater good of it, it stalled out on me and ended up not working. And so it always stayed true to me that if I'm not giving back in some way, and if I'm not um, um, being uh, you know, a servant leader in a way where I can help other people, it, it, it just automatically organically dies out on me, you know, it just because it just isn't who I am. And so I honestly think the reason I coach and the reason I teach and, and I'm around coaches like yourself and, and athletes and adults who want to be fit um, is because it's an opportunity to, to give back and to do something of that. So that's always been my why, you know, that opportunity to give back and to be a part of something bigger. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I can't remember where I heard it from. I think it was a Dan John book, but he talks about uh people and their work and he's like some people do what they do for a job some people view it like that some people view it as a career uh, and other people view it as a calling and just you know yeah. that passion to help people regardless of what that looks like on a day-to-day -day basis exactly so so true and uh when it comes to your philosophy um if you feel like you have one what is your philosophy and does that change when you're working with say a group of coaches versus when you're teaching children? Yeah, yeah, it does. Obviously the, the, the one common denominator is success and success has many different faces, right? Um, so if I'm working with a, a, a workshop setting, I'm dealing with other professional coaches. Um, it's about giving them information that will allow them to be successful when they leave that workshop. Well, that's my goal when I'm teaching uh, young athletes or older athletes, same thing. I want them to gain success, but how I go about that is different. 
I want my young athletes and uh, experienced athletes that I work with, I want them to learn how to move very organically. I want them to learn how to move without having to put too much thought into it, only when I need them to. Um, in other words, I, I need them to become a very reactive athlete, which is gonna serve them better when they actually play. But when I'm dealing with my coaches, I need them to know, just like the question you asked me to open up is why, I need them to know why. So I need them to understand this is why I don't say a lot to my kids when they fail. Or this is when I will say something when they continually fail. Or this is why when they do five things correct and then on the sixth one they do it wrong, I never say anything about that wrong attempt or that poor attempt. But if they do five things wrong, or incorrectly and one right, then I'll interject. So I need the I need the coaches to understand the reasoning behind that so that they can take that philosophy or that methodology of teaching and implement it as well. So there's a definite difference, but what brings them both together, Todd, is we have to set people up for success. And sometimes you set them up for success by getting out of their way. Yeah, and that's something I want to explore a little bit deeper because uh, when I was looking through the copious notes I've made on your stuff, uh, a couple of quotes that have sprung out to me that I really like. Uh, the athletes have to show me that they're doing something wrong before I break it down. And uh, in relation to you teaching the hip turn, you said, I teach it, but I really don't. I introduce it and then I let the kids go. Where did, did this come from, for example, the education background for your family? Is it something that you've come to perhaps reflecting on getting too involved? Uh, where does that approach come from? Yeah, uh, Todd, I made all the mistakes, right? I, I made them all. When I was a young coach, uh, back when I first started out in the 80s and, and, and started coaching, I, you know, I, I was given a license to teach and a license to coach. So I thought I had to do it all the time. And over time, I realized I was making something that is, is, has an innate quality, I was making it very difficult for the athletes because I was interjecting on something that didn't need my comments. It, what the athletes needed is they needed more repetitions. They just needed unencumbered uh, repetitions, which means I needed to get out of their way. I needed to allow them to fail a little bit. I needed them to have a little bit of guided discovery. In other words, you know, it's it, rather than me telling them exactly what they did wrong and exactly what to do to fix it. All I had to do was say, sometimes think about this, or how about a little bit harder? Or how about moving to your left a little bit? Just things that made them have to take the problem solving action and and I just directed them a little bit to the right or a little bit to the left, but I didn't give them an, an answer. Much like with my three children who learned to ride a bike. I didn't teach them how to ride a bike. I, all I did was expose them to the environment and the task of riding a bike, and then I let them go. And their body figured it out. So that's pretty much the way that I approach teaching and coaching, but I had to learn that. I, I realized the more I talked, 
the more I got in the way of learning. And uh, on that subject, I don't really want to get into a yes, no debate about closed or open drills. But what I do want to explore a little bit is you mentioned about maybe saying one, possibly two things to uh, athletes to help them out. How do you bridge the gap between something that is completely closed versus the chaotic nature of sports? I find as coaches, we're very good at maybe designing a game. I feel like we're very good at this is the technical model in a closed drill, but there's an awful lot of space in between. Yeah, 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 definitely. So it, it's, it, it always stems from the, the, the vision, the goal. So if I am taking an athlete that is going to learn how to do the pole vault, I can't give them too much uh, freedom because the pole vault has inherent risks, dangers, but it also is a very highly skilled and challenging event. Okay. So, but if I had to teach an athlete how to drew, uh, you know, uh, dribble a soccer ball, I can demonstrate one time or two times and say, go. And now I can allow them to fail all they want. Chances of them getting hurt, learning how to dribble a soccer ball are really low. So, I have the ability to put them in an environment that can be open or closed. So I could set up a series of say eight cones in a row and say, I want you to dribble weaving in and out through these going to the left first to the right. So that's a very closed format. I can, I can have that athlete learn a ton from that environment because they can learn how much touch to put on the ball, what part of their foot can project the ball back through the cones, um, how much speed to put on the ball, how tall they should be standing or low, or how much they have to reach outside their center of mass to be able to balance and still control the ball. Or I could have them in an open field with a partner and say, your job is to get to the other side of the field while a partner is marking you. That's, a, that's an open skill now. That's a much different uh, selection of options that they have and choices. Both of them serve a great purpose. One will solve a problem sooner. The other will solve problems a little bit more ugly, but will be more advantageous when that, that player goes to actually play. So it's being able to say, well, no, I don't care about playing right now. I just want them to feel what it's like to kick the ball correctly. So I'm probably going to go more closed. If I want to go like, no, I just want them to solve problems the whole time, then I would go more open and I'll deal with the consequences of that as we go along. And how this is something I've not really planned. It has popped into my head, especially when I'm teaching. How important in that sort of guided discovery phase, do you think it is for kids to be able to verbalize what they're doing? So in the example you mentioned, um, I've had it before, I've coached kids who are like 11 and 12 who haven't had that background of playing sport. And they might not be able to tell you, for example, why they lower their center mass, why they use this part of their foot. But you can tell just by watching them that they're learning. Um, and in PE, in the PE bubble or in my teacher training, we were always told how important it was for the kids to be able to verbalize it. 
even if you could see that they could do it, but they can't necessarily tell you why they're doing it. Um, to what extent do you think that's important? Or do you think we're sort of getting obsessed with demonstrating learning, despite the fact we can see it taking place? Yeah. Yeah. Again, I think it comes back to the goal, the, the goal that you have, the standard you've set for your lesson or for your curriculum. As a teacher, when we would um, physically test the students, like on their, their ability to retain knowledge, then it becomes important that they can verbalize their experience. But that does not always mean that they're going to have greater transfer of execution of the skill because any great athlete will tell you is they can't tell you why they just scored 40 points in a game and hardly missed, or they scored four goals in a, in a football match when they dribbled through defenses and they, they can't, they couldn't tell you why. Um, so it depends on what your end goal is as a skills coach or as a, as a team coach, I don't always care if they can verbalize it to me unless it matters to the context. So if we're, if we're running a particular type of defense and I need that player to understand why they have to retreat back when the ball is on the opposite side to be in better position, they need to be able to tell me that. But if they made a, an amazing footwork play and stole the ball from an opponent, I don't need them to tell me how they did that, right? So it's context as to the game itself and the skill. So I think we need to be able to decide. And I think we want to make sure we understand the role of conscious versus unconscious learning. If we make athletes conscious, we need to have a very important reason for that because that does not serve as well when we want uh, sustainability of learning a skill. Okay, sometimes it needs to be very unconscious. It just needs to be patterned because they've done it, but not necessarily consciously know why they did it. It just has to be a reaction to the environment. Yeah, you're absolutely nailed that. And for me, it touches along a lot of things when people say, oh, what's the difference in teaching and coaching? And sometimes I struggle to answer that, but that was perfect. I like that a lot. Um, and another that also touches on another thing in terms of a lot of the skills you teach and I've heard you speak about this many times in the past of people trying to make the unconscious conscious or trying to stop some an athlete doing something that they would naturally do. Do you want to talk about your methodology for assessing either a sport or an athlete um, and how you go about that? So assess how I want when I watch a move, my assessment of how they move. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So the, the, I, I'll, I'll come back to this word a lot, and I've already used it. If you look at the context as to how they're moving and why they're moving, um, often when I am watching a game and I'm evaluating a game, often I don't watch the ball. I watch everything around the ball that's going on, and it, it allows me to see, if I, especially if I'm wa watching a particular player, I watch how they flow, how they perceive um, angles, how they perceive uh, where to be based on where the play is 
taking place, that, that gives me an idea of their understanding, okay? Their understanding of their environment. Now, when I specifically hone in on their actual mechanics, their biomechanics, what I try to do is I try to notice, does something, in a, does something appear to be low functioning? In other words, they're, they're capable of performing it. There's nothing there that's stopping them physically from being able to perform it. It's just they're at a lower functioning level. Maybe they're not strong enough yet. Maybe they're not um, quite quick enough yet. Uh, maybe they just haven't had enough time yet, especially with, with pre-adolescence. They just haven't had enough time. So they're a little bit low functioning. If they're dysfunctional, then I know there's something going on that I notice like every time maybe they plant with their right leg, they tend to collapse and they tend to get stuck and they tend to what I call sway and they, they get stuck in that cup too long. And I only see it on one particular side. I don't see it on the other. That makes me think, okay, is there a dysfunction going on? Is there a hip, ankle, maybe a, a, you know, a low back or something that's going on? And then that takes deeper evaluation, right? But if I'm going to be working with that athlete, that gives me the opportunity to say, hey, I want to make sure I address that right side because every time they went to the right side, they looked very dysfunctional in their movement versus low function in which I would see consistently all over the place, you know? So those are some of the things that I look at. And then it allows me to put together my, um, my final stages of an evaluation. Cause we all have the things that we know we're going to check, but then we have these things that the athlete shows us and we're like, okay, I better check that. You know what I mean? So you might have 75%. Yeah. I'm going to check this, 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 and this. I do it with everybody. Then over here, it's what those, those staples that I know I'm going to test tell me, then that lets me know what else I might test. And I've heard you speak on other podcasts. And what I found interesting there about your assessment is at no point did you say, for example, uh, I'm checking the 20 meter sprint times. I'm checking a 505 time. Um, I'm sure you probably do those in some kind of capacity but right. why do you go to for example video footage first before you uh, look at the numbers yeah well i think because i know my role my role is as a performance coach my job whether it's an eight-year-old an 18-year-old or a 28-year-old my job is to help them perform better at their stage okay the 28-year-old, I mean, it, it could be the biggest stage possible. And the 18-year-old, it could be maybe to get uh, a scholarship. And the 8-year-old, it could be just to be able to enjoy and have fun movement. So if I look at it like that and I watch them move and I see how they, you know, how they um, absorb force and create force and do all this, it just tells me so much as to what at the end of the day they want. They want to perform better. They don't want to score high on my assessment. That's not their goal. Their goal isn't to have a, you know, a four point, you know, eight in a five ten five test or whatever you want. That's not their goal. Their goal is to play better football or their goal is to play better tennis. So I always keep that in mind. So if I watch them perform, 
it gives me greater insight as to what, at the end of the day, what it is that my job is. It's not to be the best assessor in the world, right? It's to be able to evaluate what that player needs to have fun on the pitch. Yeah, and, and to paraphrase something I've heard you say in other podcasts, you've said that your goal is to not make them look great in the gym, it's to make them look good on the pitch, on the court. Um, exactly. For those athletes who are lacking in those, for example, strength qualities, and again, something you've uh, said previously is even with all the speed you can develop with the multi-directional speed techniques you teach, at some point there's going to be a ceiling that's limited by strength. Now, for for example, PE teachers, sports coaches, people who don't have the opportunity to get their athletes in the weight room, uh, what would you do when you think to yourself, right, they've got to the point where strength is the limiting factor? Um do you just accept that there's not much you can change about it? Um, do you start, I don't know, integrating plyometrics and bodyweight strength stuff? How do you go about that? Yeah, actually, actually, just what you finished with. So we know that some of the greatest athletes in the world are not the strongest athletes in the world, but they have relative strength. So in order for a particular soccer player or, or you know, uh, cricket player or swimmer or whatever to perform they have developed enough strength to be able to be good at performing that skill but what happens is to advance a little bit more and to reduce the potential for injury they need to have a muscular system and a central nervous system that can that can communicate well together to be able to support the body better to stabilize joints better, to, to absorb force quickly and then get rid of that force really quick. So we can do that, like you just said. We can do body weight, and I'll talk about body weight in a second. We can do plyometrics and or various forms of jump training. We can do those things. And if we are in a, a physical education class where we probably don't have weights, um, maybe we have some tubing and bands and stuff we could use, but we have to, at that point, we have to have a grasp of how we can increase intensity factors without having external load. So I could have an athlete do a squat and maybe hold that bottom position of that squat for five seconds and do that five times. Now, if it took them one second to get down, five seconds to hold, one second to get back up, that's seven seconds. If I did that five times, that's 35 seconds now that this youngster has to be able to control that movement. So all of a sudden their physiological system is adapting to that. It's getting better at managing that stress. So I can give them environmental factors and, and tempos and um unilateral movements which are harder than bilateral based on the type of exercise you're doing to increase those strength qualities once i see that they they've established great patterning now i just increase the speed of those patterns by a lot now they learn to take that new strength that new stability and now they can move their body through space quicker through these plyometrics and these different forms of jump training and in terms of um something I've been interested in over the last uh, few weeks in, is the transfer of training from the strength side of things onto the field. 
uh, in your experience in terms of bilateral strength training versus unilateral, have you seen, for example, any more transfer of one than the other? And I know in the SNC world, we love to take an either or approach when it probably should be both. And, um, but do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I, th- my feeling is I love bilateral stuff, but I'm a huge fan of unilateral. And the, the reason I am Todd is because when an athlete does something in a, let's, let's say even a hybrid unilateral. So let's say I'm in a split stance position or a rear elevated position where I'm still dominating the support with one leg. The other leg is just more or less like a kickstand. It's there for balance. I'm not splitting the weight between the front and the back. I'm actually more loading the front just for balance purposes. When I do that, and now I perform something with a unilateral action with my upper body. So let's say I'm in a um, I'm in a left foot forward split stance, but I shift my weight over that left foot. The left foot's in front. And I, now I use my left hand to row and pull a band or a cable or something towards me past that left foot. So what I've at, in essence done is I've created these oppositional rotational or transverse forces that I consistently see in running anyway, running or jumping or throwing. So I don't know that I can transfer it completely, but I think I can give the athlete's central nervous system and their, their, their balance, their vestibular system, I think I can give them something that they're like, okay, I do something similar to this a lot when I'm playing sport. I have to be on one leg. I have one pelvis in front of the other, the opposite shoulder in front of the other to create balance and coordination between the two sides. And that tends to help me. So in my mind, don't know that it's completely true, but I have seen athletes um, seem to gravitate better to the field of the court when I do unilateral stuff. It helps balance pelvis position, core integration of ribs and lower body. So don't know, don't have a great answer uh, for that, but that's what I seem to feel because personally I have felt that I'm a big uh, unilateral trainer for myself. And when I do that, I seem to move better. Do you think we, from a strength conditioning perspective, we're almost too keen, like you mentioned your top down model, do you think we're almost too keen to go straight to exercises that give us more force production without questioning whether or not there's some easier wins along the way? I do. I, I really do because I know having talked with some elite sprint coaches that they'll, they'll say some of their best sprinters don't like working hard in the weight room. They don't like having to produce a high amount of intensity or force they don't like um, the idea of training for that. They like to run. They like to jump. They like to do the plyometrics. Now, they know it's important. They know they have to do it, but they spend more time working on the things that make them great. They, they, they do the, the things that get their foot on and off the ground really quick in different you know, forms of running or jumping or, or whatever the, the skill might be. And they do less of the strength training, but they still do it enough so that they do get an adaptation to it. 
But if they had somebody that was the other way, like just loves the weight room, okay, they'll, they'll take advantage of that and they'll use the weight room in that force. But I think, I think we as human beings are designed to escape. We're designed to attack. We're designed to run. I just don't think we take enough time to develop those attributes. I think we only go to what we know we can see better and control better, and that's strength, right? If I put somebody on a squat rack, it's relatively slow. I can see it. I can move them. I can shift them. But when somebody sprints, I can't see that very well. That's uncomfortable for coaches. They're like, okay, I see the arms and legs moving, and maybe their arms are crossing their body. I got to fix that but I can't tell what's happening when the foot hits the ground, but I can tell what's happening when they squat slow and they pronate and then they tip forward. So we go to what we're more comfortable at, but I think we have to respect the body better by saying we are designed to move. We're designed to move quick. Not everybody has the genetics to be as quick as one another, but we, that doesn't mean we don't have that ability to be able to still move quickly. And I think that's what we have to build a lot of our foundation around. And with your uh, programming that does include uh, work in the gym, do you still take the um, top-down approach into the gym in the sense of, for example, if you're on court, you'll watch them on court, decide where the limiting factor is, work with them on court. And then, as you mentioned there, will you almost leave strength stuff until, I suppose, the last thing you will try and fix assuming you've ticked everything else would that be fair to say yeah i i think it depends you know i think um i'll, I'll give you a kind of an example like when i do my strength oh excuse me my training session rarely do i do strength first now i have but i'm going to train athletic qualities of movement first i'm going to train mobility stability movement reaction time uh, force production, all with the body moving on the ground in agility and, and uh, controlling rotational patterns, things like that. Then I try to tie that together by bolstering them with strength at the end. Now, if I, am, if I know my training session is going to be a very fatiguing one, I'll do strength first because I want to make sure I, if I'm going to do strength, I'll get the quality of that strength in. But typically, if I'm just doing speed and reaction and change of direction, stuff like that, I'll do that stuff first because that's the one area that I want the central nervous system to grab onto mostly. We can control them in the weight room, okay? Other than like if I'm doing like a snatch, something that's pretty violent, pretty quick, and they have to have really, really good timing and coordination. But other movements, I can control them. I can change that. But rarely do I train speed slow but I can train strength slow. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And in terms of, uh, in terms of training uh, speed and deceleration qualities, I've heard you mention on other podcasts that you feel like deceleration lends itself more to the weight room than say acceleration or change of direction. Um, could you just elaborate on that for me, please? Yeah, so if we look at how we typically train deceleration, is we, we normally train it as stopping. So I'll run five meters. When I get to that five meter line, I stop in either maybe a bilateral jump stop or a split step, or I might do a lunge stop, 
or I might start to rotate and do what I call a rotational stop or, or, or a, like a, a lateral stop. Um, or I could stop in any hybrid of those. Well, when I play sport or am defending myself in a real live situation where I'm trying to get away from someone, something dangerous, I never, I, I don't try to stop and become still. When I stop and become still, I am training the, the ultimate of eccentric loading and then ultimately isometric control. So I run, I eccentrically use force to slow my mass down, and then I hold that position for a second or two or three seconds, whatever the coach tells me to do. That's a strength quality. But when I play sport, rarely do I just stop. I'm typically decelerating to change direction. And that is a quality that needs to be trained more on the, on the speed side of things. But I can take that eccentric loading of deceleration training and I can train a large part of that in the weight room. The part that I need to train in the agility uh, arena is or the change of direction arena is the fact that I have to control my upper body mass and momentum. So that's where there's a big strength portion of it. But the part that makes it kind of in the agility area is as I'm moving forward, I got to stop my movement. That's where we see that more in the agility. We don't see that so much in the weight room where my, my upper body mass gets moving and I have to stop it. We don't typically see that because we're not usually moving at those speeds. So that's why I look at deceleration training as it has a very large carryover from what I can do in the weight room as we're multi-directional change of direction and re-acceleration has a lot to do with the elastic qualities that I'm going to get out on the pitch, on the court, on the track, or ice if I'm a hockey player. So yeah, that's the difference. That's the line I draw. And what I like there was you described about how the qualities marry up because I remember, for example, years ago when I got into strength and conditioning, the progressions I was taught from a plyometric perspective was hop and hold or jump and stick. And then once you develop the ability to land for three or five seconds or whatever, then you can go into the reactive work. When in reality, as you said, it's something that doesn't happen in sport. A lot like many of the other things you talk about, like, for example, trying coaches trying to get athletes out of the habit of plyo stepping backwards and other things like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, this is a discussion I have consistently, and Todd, I've had this talk for 30 years. It's it's funny how we and a coach will say when I when I teach an athlete, let's say to do a lateral leap, like an ice skater, and stick and hold balance. They're saying, well, I'm trying to give them a foundation so that they can be quicker. I'm like, well, if we look at what makes them quick, it isn't the ability to sustain and hold a position for very long. It's the ability to get out of that position. So if you want to build a stronger muscle, a stronger tendon, well, let's get them in the weight room. Let's do some things in the weight room. But if we want to build a resilient um, 
somewhat compliant, but very reactive tissue, we have to train that from the get-go. And that doesn't mean it can't be low level, safe and progressional. I can teach a seven-year-old how to jump rope and you can't tell me jump roping is dangerous unless you get a rope that <laughs> hits them in the head or something like that. Otherwise, I can start building the qualities so they learn how to return energy quickly. And I can start doing that. And not only at that level am I giving them the ability to return this energy, which we could start to say it's reactive or plyometric in a, in a sense, but because they're low level athletes, it's actually building some strength qualities. It's giving their tissues the ability to build some density and, and some tensile strength. And even some of them, it'll start to build a little bit more um, uh, strength quality, like a strength, because they, that's how they're getting it. As where if I took a professional boxer and tried to use jump roping as strength training, well, it's probably not going to happen, right? So I think if we look at it that way, we can start to say, well, I can be over here and give a foundation of strength, but I can also be over here and give a foundation of resiliency. Those two myths, it, the, the problem is when I say, I'm going to go right to high-level plyometrics with this new athlete, and I'm going to skip all these steps. That's that's when we get a bad name, right? And all we have to do is let's just be smart. Right? There's progressions, but that doesn't mean I have to do this thing first, this strength training, before I can even start doing some bounce. I can build bounce right off. There's no reason you can't. That's what kids do at recess, right? Absolutely. And it's uh, one of the questions I noticed I jotted down uh, earlier was, um, for example, where my thinking's moved on from uh, your work is a few years ago, if you said, right, I don't know, you've got 45 minutes or whatever with an athlete, you can do whatever you want. What would you do with them? Back then I'd be like, right, let's get them stronger because we know we'll have quick wins and everything else. Whereas now I'm like, right, let's, let's teach them to move. And then we'll tap out on that because I'd rather have someone who can move well on the court and then know all I've got to do is get them stronger than to have someone who's really strong, but can't move. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you're feeding, you're feeding their ego, right? Because most athletes, you're, you're going to find, and I know you know this, you're going to find some athletes that really uh, buy into the weight room and they like it. They like the way it makes them feel and look, but you're going to have a large percentage of just doing it because that's part of the program and they have to do it. And then you're going to have that, that other percent that don't like it at all. But all of them like to play their sport. All of them like to do, um, you know, their physical activities that they're that they've joined up for, right? Now, now phys ed is different. Not all the kids like physical activity, but but if they're an athlete and they're playing a sport, chances are they're there because that's what they want to do. They want to play it. So why not? Why shouldn't we buy into that? Like, why shouldn't we say, okay, well, if that's what you like, I'm going to give you more of what you like, and then that'll allow me to be able to go to the other end and say, okay, well, if you want to score more goals or you want to be a better defender or you want to be a better rebounder, if you allow me to get you a little bit stronger, those things will happen even better. So now you have a relationship with those athletes where I can now get the strength training, but I got to make sure they get to do what they, that's what they're there for is to go play. Yeah. It's funny because I almost feel like, uh, it's very easy for us as coaches to be like, oh, well, if we explain why the strength's important, then the athlete will get by and then, you know, it's easy to say on a presentation. But I kind of feel like it's the equivalent of 
telling people that vegetables are good for them. Like we, we know that's true, but that doesn't mean that it that's motivates okay. us anymore. Whereas like you said, when you start to connect the dots, that's when they start to potentially buy into it more. And like you said, you've built the relationship from the sport and then you're supplementing it with the weight training rather than starting with the weight training and trying to work your way back to the sport. Definitely. Yep. Yep. Definitely. And uh, in terms of, so you've mentioned, or you've kind of alluded to your uh, tier approach, which I've heard you uh, speak about, but for those who haven't come across um, your three tiered system uh, and people in the UK are probably bored to death of talking about tiers with how we're handling COVID. But uh, <laughs> if you could just explain how that works for you in terms of coaching multi-directional speed. Yeah, yeah. So, so the reactive tier system I developed a long time ago because I was trying to get coaches to understand that if, if, if you can get your athletes to be in uh, more engaged in the process, you can get better results with them from the beginning. So for example, I'll, let me, let me explain the different tiers first and then I'll go into why. So a tier one is basically a react, a reactive exercise uh, could be chasing someone or chasing a ball or running through a line. They know exactly where they're going to go. So we could use track as an example. A 100-meter sprinter knows where they're going to go. They just don't know when, not until the gun goes off. So I use that as an advantage. I'll put my athletes, after they've warmed up, I put them in a tier one, and I'll say, hey, I want you to either run or shuffle or back up, whatever, on my command, but you're only going this far. Once you're there, it's done. We'll start again. A tier two still has the same concept where once they go to that destination, they're done. The only difference is now is they don't know where they're going to go. They still don't know when. They just, you know, they just don't. So an example using track again is I could put the athlete at the 50 meter mark and say, okay, you're going to race to the finish line or to the start. You don't know which one. So when I say go, take off and go which one, whatever one I point to. Or I could make it even more um, reactive and say, okay, Todd is the leader. Everybody else in the different lanes, you have to go wherever Todd goes. So when he takes off, if he goes to the finish line, you try to beat him. If he turns and runs back towards the start line, you got to catch him there. Okay, so that's a tier two because once you're done, you're done. Now, a tier three is when we can start to introduce change of direction or that deceleration word we used. So now the athlete doesn't know when, they don't know where, but there could be multiple change of direction. So it could be, let's use that same example again. We're at the 50-yard line and we're all facing Todd and Todd takes off and goes towards the finish line, but then he changes the direction and goes towards the start and then he changes the direction. We have to continually stay with you. That well, We could call that a mirror drill, right? So now I have a tool that I can take an athlete that maybe is playing basketball and they're struggling gaining first step or first, maybe their first three steps of the shuffle, defensive lateral movement. They're struggling with that. They're not struggling necessarily with change of direction. They're pretty quick. They're just not getting up to speed fast enough. So now I can say, well, let's go ahead and work on a tier one. And when I say go, give you a command, 
I want you to shuffle as fast as you can three times. So now I have a system that I can break down the skills. I can train them reactively. And the reactive nature, what that does is that gets the athlete in state. Okay, so if you ever tell an athlete, hey, walk up to that line whenever you're ready, just go. They're kind of like, so I go whenever? Yeah, just whenever you're ready, you go. So they walk up to the line and they kind of stroll. And the first two steps are probably half effort, right? But if I put you in a tier, do the exact same exercise, say you can't go until I say go, and I'm going to time you to get to that five-meter mark, that changes their state drastically. So I can get a better training effect. I can put them in the context of what it's like to compete all the time. But then by doing it that way, I get to see how the athlete moves in real time. I get to see their technique, their biomechanics. Now, the other part of the tier system is we go to the corrective. Now I can slow it right down. I can do any kind of corrective that's going to fit the role that I want rather than just guessing on what correction to do. I go right. So let's say, Todd, you did it and you you took off and your legs look good, but your arms are kind of like all over the place. Well, I might have you do a half kneeling arm action drill just to practice. That's my corrective. It's very controlled. So without going too much longer, that's pretty much what the tier system is and allows me to really become a much more effective and efficient coach. And I like what you mentioned there about correctives, because when I first heard of the term corrective, it was almost always, uh, for example, not a fluffy exercise, but it might be like, I don't know, foam roll your calves or do a knee to wall or something like that. And I think oftentimes we, and this is why I quite like your top down approach. I feel like we break things down to a point where they're not saying they're no longer relevant, but they're so detached from the sport that the athlete can't really see how that fits in with the bigger picture. That's right. There's your context. If the athlete has context, you get two things with context. And this is what I always tell my coaches. If you give an athlete context, you've, you've, you've allowed them to understand why the drill matters. Because if, if you just stumbled three or four times in a row doing a particular drill and I said, okay, Todd, slow down, do this. You're like, okay, yeah, I, I see why you're telling me to do this coach. Right. So it gives you that, but it also, um, when you, when you, you know, give somebody context, they, they, they'll buy in, like they'll, they'll do the exercise. They understand why, but they buy into the process of your teaching and your coaching because they understand Lee's not going to just give me all these boring exercises. He's going to slow me down when I need it. So they'll give you more effort knowing that you'll fix the problem or try to fix the problem rather than trying to fix a problem that's not there. And that's the biggest problem we make in our coaching industry. We're trying to solve problems. Well, maybe there's not a problem. So why are you throwing a corrective at somebody that doesn't have a problem? I think that's as true in multi-directional speed as it is in the weight room. Um, in terms of providing context then, how would you go about delivering multi-directional speed within a uh, PE setting? So if I just sort of waffle on as to how I've tried it, I'd be interested in your thoughts. So uh, yeah. with one of the schools I worked at, I said to the PE staff that 
we could potentially attach a multi-directional speed quality that links in with the sport and that allows kids to see that link more easily. So for example, I've had it before where I've had confused looks from uh, field hockey players when we're doing sprint mechanics or maximum velocity. And they're just like, what's, what's this? Whereas for example, doing some deceleration based games in netball, we can then link to the footwork rule, which then feeds into the lesson and feels like this is all just one big part of it rather than, oh, here's a weird warm up, and then I do my sport. Um, but how would you provide context within, say, a PE lesson within a sports-based model? Yes, yeah, great question. So this is how, this is how I solved a lot of my discipline problems and my compliance uh, problems in physical education is we started with the activity first, the game, the sport, whatever it is, I just gave them enough so that they understood it. So for example, if we were doing, let's say, um, let's use, we'll use volleyball as an example, okay? So we're teaching volleyball. That's a, that's a pretty fine skill for kids to learn how to control that volleyball. So what I would do is I would give them either a volley light ball or a beach ball, something that they could control and have more success with. And we'd start playing. I would just say, hey, you can't physically touch the net with your body. Um, if the ball lands out of bounds, it's the other team's point, or it's your point. I mean, if, you know, whatever. I just gave them the basic rules, right? And I said, all right, let's go. Let's play. Now, while they're playing, and I would see a couple, um, you know, mistakes of the game, I would say, okay, so now here's what I want you guys all to do. Give me 30 seconds here. I want you to just spread out. I want you to put your arms out in front of you, and I want you to make what we're going to call a platform. So imagine you had to walk around the gym holding the volleyball on your forearms, and it couldn't fall off. I said, that's a platform. So I want you to all to do that. I said, okay, ready? Play again. When that ball comes, now all of a sudden I'm watching the kids all form platforms because I just gave them context because they all would miss the ball going like, you know how they go like this and they try to punch it with their thumbs or their wrist. I said, no, 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 you don't have a big enough surface. Let's make a platform. So all of a sudden they got it, but they, they got it because I gave them the context within the game. So now let's say I wanted to make a, a physical quality of athleticism uh, improvement. I would say, okay, that ball got tipped over your head multiple times. You guys had a hard time getting it. Let's put the ball down for two seconds. Everybody get in your space, get in your spot, you six players that are in the on your team and the other team, face the net. When I say go, you're going to turn and sprint as fast as you can to the baseline. And we would do that a couple times. Now I'm saying, that's how you chase a tipped ball that goes over your head. Or I could do the same thing. I say, okay, when I say go, I want you to shuffle to the sideline and then come right back. And then we'd say, ready, go, play again. And now all of a sudden they get it. They're like, okay, well, that's why I have to move laterally or back. So I rarely would go over 90 seconds with any instruction, with any drill. I'd get them right back in it. That doesn't mean I won't come back to it and do it again. So I could do you know, four to five times of 30 seconds, 40 seconds, 50 seconds, 90 seconds, but never in a row. I go, I let them play because I'm giving them what they want, but I'm also giving them what they need. And I can do that by never making it about the skills. I make it about the game. 
And then the kids start to look at the skills as well. If I want to get better, I have to know the skills and they know I'm never going to make them just do the boring skill work. Now that might look a little bit different in a practice. Like if you're an actual volleyball player on my varsity team, okay, that might look a little different, but in phys ed, no way. I have to keep engagement and that's how I would do it. I mean, you just absolutely knocked out of the park for me because uh, a couple of things that I've been thinking of, and I even put this on my Twitter the other day, is, uh, and I've had this before, when kids say, oh, can we just play again? And in my mind, I think that shows me I've done something wrong because I don't see PE the same way I see maths and English. Like you'd never, for example, have a kid saying, oh, can we do Pythagoras? Can we read Shakespeare if they can't? add up, subtract and write basic sentences. Uh, Whereas I do think in PE, kids want to play the game. So I'm not just saying roll the ball out, split into two teams and that's all you do, but you do need to give them context and you do need to almost that whole part, whole method. And what I liked about what you said there is I've seen a lot of things and we spoke about this off air where from a strength and conditioning coach perspective, it's very easy to naively come into PE and be like, I've got these multi-directional games But like you said, it takes 90 seconds to explain and it finishes within 10 seconds. And it's very stop start. And like you said, anyone who's taught PE to kids who aren't the most sporty, you're just asking for behavior issues. But that's uh, I'm definitely going to steal the volleyball one. Definitely going to steal that. (laughs) Well, you know, you had mentioned as an example, uh, field hockey. So like when we used to do, whether it was broom ball, field hockey, whatever we were doing like that. The way that we would do like any kind of speed work or sprint work is I would take the the ball, they would have their stick, and I would stand in between them. So the first two people, I would have a whole bunch of um, field hockey balls. And so the first two, I would roll it out in front and they had to sprint to it. First one to get it, they they would win that race and then he'd come back. and, And while they're coming back, the next one's going and then the next one. So I'm getting them to sprint. Now, if I notice a lot of them didn't like to lift their knees when they run, I would take cones. So if my water bottle is a cone, I would lay it on its side. So it's only maybe three to four inches high. Now they had to run over the cones. Now I immediately am making them lift their knees without telling them to lift their knees. They just know they have to do it. So that's how I would do things. I would look at the problem I'm seeing I would come up with a solution without telling them, but their body naturally did it. Yeah. And this kind of circles back to uh, what we mentioned before. It's highly unlikely that, for example, in that one you've just mentioned, it's highly unlikely when you're sprinting as fast as possible that you're all consciously aware that you've lifted your knees higher, um, but you have got a better movement solution. And when it comes to, because you mentioned the hockey example, I remember a few years ago, I was out in Germany, uh, coaching or doing the physical conditioning for a lacrosse team uh and they said to me about with the conditioning whether they should do it stick in hand stick out of hand and i noticed a lot of them would do what you mentioned earlier where the arms come across their body and uh for the sake of that pre-season drill i said right i want maximum intensity because the adaptation i want is from a conditioning perspective um but they were all saying oh we want to use the stick for well we're used to having the stick in our hand where do you sit on that kind of spectrum for deciding whether you use the implement or whether you leave the implement and does it change if for example you're working with say i don't know 12 year olds versus professional lacrosse players tennis players hockey players etc 
Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that last part because it, it does change because I, my job is to teach the, the, the ability to run, the ability to sprint, the, the mechanical part of it. I can teach that and knowing that once they go back to their sport, the sport is gonna absorb the pattern, right? It's gonna absorb how they run holding a stick, a racket, a bat, whatever sport you're playing in your hand. You don't have to work with them to necessarily do that unless they're younger and they're learning. So if I work with tennis players, we talk about you can't have the racket head flailing forward and back. You have to almost like tuck it back in. Otherwise, the lever gets too long and it'll throw you off. You don't have to show Roger Federer that. You don't have to have him. He can work on just sprinting and running because the sport will absorb how he's going to run with the racket anyway. That without us even saying anything, it naturally will come. But if it's, let's say, lacrosse, uh, where we're going to have two hands on it at times, then we might need to show them so they understand cradling or if we're pivoting or doing something like that. But otherwise, I try to teach the, the ability to move, the ability to run, and then let the sport absorb it on its own. I think that's a better trade-off than always doing it with the racket because then I can never get their body to reach maximal speed levels that they can. I would rather let me get you at 20 miles an hour without anything. So now with your stick, you might be able to reach 19 miles an hour. But if I train you at 19 miles an hour all the time because you have your stick, I never can get you to 20. So, so that's my reasoning for not doing it. And it goes back to what you mentioned uh, earlier about the weight room and speed question. Like, there's no point training speed tired, even though you might think, oh, well, it's not going to transfer if I don't hold my stick. So, well, there's bigger things which won't transfer. That's right. Yeah. And uh, just a uh, couple of questions or the last question I had before reaching the outro questions. Uh, in terms of the logistics of coaching multidirectional speed stuff to large groups of athletes, so whether it's in a P setting with mixed ability or maybe, I don't know, you've got 30 plus athletes uh, in an academy setting, do you have any general rules of thumb for, for example, minimizing behavioral issues, minimizing athletes running into each other, keeping work to rest ratios and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah, that's a great one. And I talk on this a lot, actually. And uh, we, one of the things that you want to do, first and foremost, is build an extreme amount of excitement. Make the process seem like something that they should be glad to be a part of and that you, you make it fun. If I'm in a phys ed class with 20 to 30 or more, we try to do as much as possible in the early part of the workout where each child will get on a line. They'll have their own space. They'll get on a line. That's my chance to do things such as line jumps back and forth, stagger the feet back and forth, um, doing uh, maybe some in-place hip turns, things that every student is involved at the same time. Their energy's high. That way, I've taken away um, sit-down time. I've taken down waiting time at the most important time of the class. At the beginning of the class is when students are most nervous 
and they're most likely to not want to be uh, out in front of their classmates. But if everybody's doing it together, we get them moving quickly. They start to get the endorphins and all the, the these uh, chemicals and hormones start to rise and their confidence goes up. Now they're more likely to be fine if they have to run in front of their students because the, the, the hormonal factors help them, right? But if I made them do that right off, they're shy. They don't want to do that. Now, some kids love it, but you can't always play to the kids who love it in phys ed. Sports are different, right? So we'll do that. Now, once I put them in lines, I minimize how deep, if, if I have a, a gymnasium, a basketball court, and I have a lot of students, I go sideline to sideline versus end line to end line because I can have more lines, which means I have less people in each line. So if I can get 10 lines of three students versus, you know, even five lines of six, I'll always go 10 lines of three, right? So I can get them into it quicker. Now, if I have no choice but to have lines as deep as five to six, usually my rule is I won't do a drill that goes over five seconds. Because if I go five seconds times six, that's 30 seconds. My last person should get their chance within 30 seconds. Now, if the only time they really wait the longest is on the very first rep. Because we start on this side of the gym, the first person goes, second person, third, fourth, fifth, then finally the last person goes. Well, now when they get to the other end, they've already moved, they already need a rest. So that 30 seconds is very much welcomed and it happens much quicker because they've already been a little bit fatigued. So we really make sure we map out, okay, I've got 30 kids. I can't do like a cone drill that takes me 30 seconds to get them through because there's too many things that could get in the way, it takes me too long to set it up. And if an athlete knocks the cone down and it dis, you know, disturbs the drill, I, I stay away from that. I'll use line markers rather than a cone if that's a potential. Um, so I just really map it out. I plan it really quick and I make sure they're moving and I stay with very easy athletic skills that all the kids can do. Yeah. and. It is so I'm laughing listening to you talk because uh, when I transitioned from strength and conditioning into PE, I made all those mistakes you've just said there. And uh, the, the, beauty, the beauty of, for example, hoops or uh, lines is if you've got one thing I'm trying to do a lot more of is what I call sort of uh, invisible differentiation. So, for example, with, hoop, uh, with hoops, you can, for example, say to the kid who you know is very athletic, look, you try and clear the hoop. Whereas other kids, you're like, right, you're working on balance or stabilization, whatever. You land in the hoop or, you know, within uh, a meter of the hoop or whatever. Um, yes. So it's built into it. Whereas if you've got a kid who's not so confident, they kick the hurdle over, everyone laughs. You've then got to reset the hurdle because the kids are going to put it around the wrong way. And you just yep. invite the problems for yourself. That's right. Exactly. Um, last couple of questions then. If you had uh, one key take home for the listeners of this podcast, whether sports coaches, PE teachers, uh, strength and conditioning coaches, whatever, what would you like that take home to be? Uh, I'll tell you, I, I think one of the most important things we can all do is um, certainly to, to continue to learn is a given, right? We all should be doing that anyway. But 
I think if we, if we learn more about learning, like I want to know, Todd, if you're my student or my athlete, I want to know what learning really means to you. Like I want to understand just the general concept of learning. Like what's the brain doing when a skill comes into my head? How am I doing? If we understand that, now we know why we should and shouldn't do certain things, right? And then I think it's important to start to understand um, um, individual learners. So I can pretty much, I can visualize right now, I'm going back, gosh, 15 years to some of my phys ed classes and even longer and looking at some of the students who were good athletes, moved pretty well, but just didn't handle the, the environment well. They were shy. They would be the ones that when they walked down the hallway, would kind of like peek at you, but they, you know, as we got some kids who were waving and hugging you. And I think learning how to manage those people. I think because at the end of the day, we can have all the answers we want on biomechanics and strength training and programming. But if you don't capture personalities and how to deal with how they learn and how they handle things, I think that's when we, we miss the boat on giving them success, which is one of the first things that I talked about. Yeah. And again, just something I've learned from going from strength and conditioning into PE teaching, you assume from strength and conditioning or working with sporty kids that they'd love to volunteer an answer. Uh, whereas in PE classes with the ones who are shy, I think my role isn't just to make you better physically, but it's to give you the confidence and confident competence to then let yourself express yourself, not just in the field, but as you said, walking past the classroom, being well-mannered, and then, I don't know, taking that into a job interview, because we're not going to always work with professional athletes. Exactly. And you know what? I want to mention this, because this is important, and this is something that I try to do a lot with uh, students, is I like to have students be servant leaders. I like to have them teach others. So if I took a shy student, partnered them, all right, so they're only, they only have, there's just two of them. But I said, okay, you now have to teach your partner how to do that skill. Watch them do it and give them. There is nothing more powerful than them helping somebody else. It's way more powerful than them being helped. Because when I'm now responsible for you and I get the joy of seeing you succeed because of what I told you and I taught you, that's one of the quickest ways to raise self-esteem, confidence, and a sense of belonging. So we teach a lot about being a servant leader. You teach somebody else. You donate something. You give to the needy. You do that. Don't be the, re the receiver all the time. You be, And that gives them more pride than anything else. And I think one of the assumptions that is easy to make is that because somebody is good at sport that they will get something from coaching somebody who's not so good at sport and I think it tells you a lot about the kid as a person I mean this might sound a bit harsh but you will get those kids who enjoy playing sport and they're like well I don't want to go with that kid he's you know whereas maturity level if you there's a brilliant clip that I wish I could remember the details that's gone viral it's this kid who's like a foot taller than everybody else on a basketball court and he keeps giving the ball to a kid who's a foot shorter and the kid keeps missing and eventually he scores. And yeah, it's one of those beautiful, uh, beautiful Love moments it. to see. Yeah. Um, and I'm interested for your answer on this one, because again, I'm not just saying this because I've got you on the podcast, but uh, I always ask people if they could observe one coach coaching and why, who would it be? 
And I'd love to see someone like yourself with a phys ed class of mixed ability because you've not just got the strength and conditioning knowledge, but the logistic knowledge, dealing with kids. Um, but if you could observe one other person working with their athletes or maybe their students, uh, who would you observe and why? Gosh, there's a lot. You know, if I were to say like in the track and field world, you know, Dan Path is one who's done it for 47 years or whatever. I love I love to watch him teach. Bruce, uh, Jack Snyder is another one. Very, very good. Um, you know, there's uh, – there's guys and gals like I would have loved to have seen someone like um, uh, Dorian Anson, who was one of the most successful soccer coaches in the college level at University of North Carolina, like 20 something national championships or whatever crazy thing it is. I would love because he has a very neat philosophy. I would like to see him. I like there's there's like some uh, Coaches like Bill Belichick in, in American football or, uh, you know, some of those coaches I would like to see just because they do things different. They don't do what everybody else does. And a lot of times that's why they're the best at it, because they, they solve problems differently. So those are some people that I would really like to see. Uh, and if you could recommend a resource to people, maybe a book, an app, a podcast, whatever that might be. Oh, yeah. Um, well, I, I think, again, I think some of the top organizations out there like EXOs, EXOs offers a lot because they, they multi-directional speed, they work with all kinds of athletes. I think if you're working in the sports like of baseball, um, things like Eric Cressy and his, the stuff that he does, I think is phenomenal um, because they have great methods. I think if you got, go to guys like uh, Greg Rose with uh, – TPI and, and it's, it's a long-term development model. And I think that's important that uh, a lot of the models that are out there, growth velocity models uh, with like, uh, uh, like, uh, you know, certain countries are doing Canada and different countries have, Ireland does a good job of that as well. Um, so I think those are some people and some things that I, I think are really good resources to follow, you know, and I, um, I'm, I'm a big fan of Carol Dweck. Yeah. Carol Dweck is a growth mindset. I think we can have all this skill and all this knowledge and all this, but I think if we understand how uh, to impact athletes, students with a growth mindset, and I think if we learn how to challenge them with that, like every time they say, oh, I can't do that, and we challenge them on that and give them a better way. I think we can impact. So she's a real good one. Another guy with that is Trevor Reagan. Uh, his, his company is called trainugly.com, trainugly.com. And that's what it's about. It's about embracing the learning process. So those are some people that I really like. Yeah. And again, just Carol direct reminds you of uh a football lesson I was teaching this week and I put a condition on the high ability pupils who were playing the low ability pupils and one kid's like sir that's not fair and then another kid was like no sir's trying to challenge us and I said to this student look that's the attitude you need and I'm putting these in place to help you be a better player and what was ironic is there's such a big disparity between ability levels that if I hadn't put the conditions on it would have been like no one would have learned anything that's right that's uh, right. Exactly. That's great. And finally, how can uh, people reach out to you or check out your work? 
Thank you for letting me share that. Yeah. So if they go to anything social media wise, like at Lee Taft, they pretty much find me. If they go to LeeTaft.com, um, then there's plenty of resources there. But I really encourage people, if you find me on YouTube, just pushing Lee Taft or the speed guy, sometimes it's under that. I have tons and tons and tons of free videos that I put out and I try to share a lot of stuff and try to get conversation going so they can get a lot of stuff there that they could probably use today. Yeah. And in terms of, as I said, in terms of you giving back, I've watched tons of your videos now, very thought provoking and certainly may challenge the way I've looked at movement and the fact that it's free. It's, I mean, I've learned a hell of a lot from your free stuff and even groundbreaking one and two, I would highly recommend those resources to people as well. I appreciate that. Thank you, Todd. My absolute pleasure. Um, I've taken up uh, plenty of your time today. I'm massively grateful, Lee. So just thank you so much for coming on and sharing your knowledge. Oh, well, thank you for having me. This has been an honor. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. All the best, Lee. Thank you, Todd. Have a great one now. Thank you for listening to episode 34 of the Platform to Perform podcast with myself, Todd Davidson, and today's guest, Lee Taft. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd love it if you could leave me a review via your preferred podcast listening platform. And if you're in a position to support the podcast or you simply want access to an exclusive Black Friday uh, offer, which I'm extending simply to listeners of the podcast, then head over to www.patreon.com forward slash Todd Davidson P2P coaching, where I'm going to allow you to download all of my programs for a payment of $14.99. You can then cancel after, no questions asked. And I'd be appreciative to anyone who is in a position to support the podcast. Thank you very much for listening. In exchange for that $14.99 payment, you'll receive exclusive access to all of the strength and conditioning programs I've released via my Patreon. This includes Corona Conditioning, which is a seven-week conditioning block that I've used to take my 800 meter suicide score down from two minutes 40 to two minutes 21 uh, in just seven weeks. Uh, An eight week running based conditioning protocol for boxers or other combat sport athletes. Bodyweight size, which is a program designed to increase strength, muscle mass and athleticism uh, using bodyweight only training. Bodyweight basics, which is a nine week program designed to improve uh, your ability to move without aches, pains, and gives you a fantastic platform to increase the intensity when gyms reopen. Uh, Pull up or shut up, a program designed to help you nail that first pull up. And last, but by no means least, Calisthenics Kids, where I've designed 30 lessons, which are child and age appropriate. Uh, And these lessons are designed to improve strength, confidence and movement skill in children. Finally, there's Robust Running, a nine-week program with movement assessments included to help you plug the gaps that may be limiting your running capabilities. Thank you very much for listening. If all of these programs sound like something you'd be interested in, then head over to my Patreon to download all of these today for a one-off price of $14.99. You can cancel immediately, no questions asked. And thank you very much for continuing to support the podcast. I'll catch you guys in the next episode with Tom Smith of SHP Fitness.